Welcome to our feature interview for Insights, the faculty journal of Austin Seminary. I am William Greenway, editor of Insights and professor of philosophical theology here at Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary. The author of our lead essay for the spring 2021 issue of Insights is Dr. David White, the C. Ellis and Nancy Gribble Nelson Professor of Christian Education and Professor of Methodist Studies here at Austin Seminary. Professor White earned his PhD in Religious Education at Claremont School of Theology, where he wrote a dissertation on reclaiming the prophetic voice of youth. He is an internationally respected authority on youth spiritual education and is author of Practicing Discernment with Youth and Dream Care, a Theology of Youth Spirit spirit and vocation, and co-author of Awakening Youth Discipleship in a Consumer Culture. Most recently, he is the editor of Joy, a Guide for Youth Ministry. Professor White has received significant grants in support of his work, including a $1.2 million grant from the Lilly Endowment to create a, top, a project on youth discipleship, a Wabash grant on teaching diversity, and closest to today's topic of beauty and spirituality, a Templeton Foundation grant exploring spoken word poetry and joy among youth. Professor White is an ordained Methodist minister and for many years early in his career worked in numerous churches as youth pastor, associate pastor, and as a conference coordinator for youth ministries. He remains focused upon the spiritual needs of youth but in recent years, his research has also focused upon the relationship of beauty to Christian ministry and spirituality, which is the topic of his next book and the title of the essay we will be discussing today, Tending the Fire that Burns at the Center of the World. Now, let me note that an abbreviated written version of this discussion will appear in this, the Spring 2021 issue of Insights. Let me also say that we will pause briefly in the middle of our discussion for those who may want to divide this interview into two parts for use in group discussion. The title of Professor White's essay, I'll say it again, which we will discuss now is Tending the Fire that Burns at the Center of the World, Beauty and the Church's Ministry. Welcome, Professor White. We are looking forward to hearing your insights on beauty, spirituality, and ministry. Thank you, Bill. It's good to be here. Now, first, your essay starts out with a beautiful remembrance of the joy you took uh, growing up in Mississippi, watching and playing uh, baseball. So I have to ask, do you still love and are you still playing baseball? Uh, what position did you play? Are you still a Yankees fan? And how is being a Yankees fan even allowed in Mississippi? <laughs> uh, well, first, let me say that um, in my age, uh, my body type allows me to be more of a coach than a player. Uh, I, I sort of peaked at age 14 athletically, uh, but I do enjoy baseball. I enjoy watching baseball and uh, really get jazzed right around uh, College World Series time. That's kind of really my, uh, you know, what I enjoy. Um, I think, uh, you know, so, so in terms of 
why one would be a Yankees fan in Mississippi, it's important to remember that uh, at that point, when I was a kid, there were no professional teams uh, in the South. The, the Atlanta Braves didn't uh, start until the late 70s, I mean, the late 60s, or, uh, you know, and um, the Houston, of course, the Astros were around, but uh, but I, I, uh, I think this was also coincided with the time uh, when I first began to read books about, uh, you know, the, the, the Yankees, um, Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle and, uh, you know, even further back, you know, Lou Gehrig and uh, some of those guys were uh, sort of pop culture heroes uh, of the time. So, uh, so that was my, uh, my entry point into uh, the lore of the Yankees. Okay. Maybe I should say in terms of turnabout being fair play, I grew up near Buffalo in New York, but, but when I was growing up, the Bills, those were the days when the Bills never reached the playoffs. So come playoff time, I was a, <laughs> like, it was back then it was America's team. I was a Dallas Cowboys fan. So there's a good, there's some given. Uh, yeah. Uh, anyway. So what, what inspired you uh, to turn and focus upon uh, beauty? Was there some moment of recognition or an event um, that, that led you to pursue this research focus? Um, so, so when I was uh, young, I was um, uh, I was very, you know, introverted, shy, and I, I you might say that the spoken word was not my first language. Uh, I, um, you know, I uh, drew, painted. Uh, tried to play music as a way of expressing myself. So it was really sort of a natural response to, uh, to, to trying to be seen and heard and known in the world and, uh, and as a way of engaging the world. But uh, I, I mean, I would also say the, the deeper I got into uh, art and music, uh, the more I began to recognize that um, there's something here that is not merely superficial. It's not merely uh, the resonant frequencies of strings vibrating, uh, but there's but there's some depth here, uh, you know, that some inarticulable depth here uh, that gives kind of text that has that's meaning. Um, I remember I had a guitar teacher uh, at, at one point. Um, I've had many through the years, but I had a guitar teacher at one point who uh, who um, who had, uh, I don't know if, if you'd say afflicted with, but uh, had this condition that he called synesthesia, you know, where uh, he could play a chord or a tone on the guitar, and in his, in his uh, mind's eye, he could see color. And, uh, and I, you know, I remember probing him, uh, and he said that, uh, that music uh, for him had, you know, crossed boundaries, it crossed modes. And so it, it had this kind of depth and texture that uh, it occurred to me that, um, you know, that it, that it had meaning. It was not just, uh, again, something about resonant frequencies or flight of the imagination, but there was something about, uh, I mean, I, I guess along with Karl Barth, I began to sense that uh, there's something here, uh, you know, that, uh, that embraces larger sense of meaning. Um, so, in, in the, how to talk about it, of course, is still very difficult and challenging. But uh, but that's that's those are some of the experiences that I originally that originally sort of drew me 
to wondering about uh, beauty and aesthetics was just this sense that that beauty crossed modes and um, could speak of something that was deep and articulate and mysterious. Yes, and, and that makes the connection. So you've had, it's funny, but it, it, that's the connection. It hadn't occurred to me to now, but you do, you do youth ministry when you look to what was beautiful and inspiring and in a sense spiritually significant to you as a youth. It was the experience of watching baseball, playing baseball, being with family, the camaraderie with teammates, all of that. And then you moved into jazz, guitar, as you got older, and that too became something which, which typically would not think of as um, a spirituality. It was spiritually significant. But in both these places, you're finding a spiritual significance in the beauty. Um, and, and that's the connection you're making. Kind of like, of course, Bart with Mozart. Uh, he had quite the bias towards Mozart. Um, but uh, maybe we can talk about that later when we talk about what makes beauty objective, whether that was an objective bias or, or, or it's a subjective thing. Uh, but that's interesting how you're making that connection and then trying to theorize it so we attend to these things um, explicitly in our ministry and in our formation. So we're not simply focused upon ideas and concepts and words, but the more indirect, uh, but maybe in some ways more powerful ways in which uh, experiential learning, um, and especially in, in the sense far as that's beautiful, um, is a part of what we're about. Is that is that a fair assessment? Is that how would you how would you nuance that differently, or is that kind of make the connections? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think. Um... I mean, one of the things that I will just note at the top here is that uh, just a performative contradiction of trying to give systematic words, you know, systematic thought to something that is that is finally mysterious and you know inart inarticulable and uh, and and that you never finally nail down and articulate you know in any kind of satisfactory way. So um, so that's kind of the that's the struggle of writing about this and talking about it is, is that, you know, at the end of the day, when I look back at what I've written for insights, you know, I can say at the same time, yes and no, you know, the, in some sense, this captures what I think and feel about beauty, but in a very real sense, it doesn't even begin to. And, and I think that will be true of this interview as well as I'm trying to talk about something uh, that has a depth and a, a mystery that is uh, that that is challenging to articulate at best. In terms of your baseball analogy, um, it, it, where you talk about, you know, you can know all the statistics, you can understand the strategy of the game, and that conceptual knowledge adds something, but it's it's somehow not as deep and not as primal or primordial a sort of knowing as is the actual engagement with the game, which is kind of true of all. Uh, you know, poetry, or I like to think of theology as a form of poetry, where it's a form of witness. Yes. So if you're focused on the words, you, 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 the words are meant to help us understand and to be better connected to something which is beyond the words and what you're gesturing towards. Um, is that right? <laughs> I forgot to pose that in the form of a question. I was just looking for you to come back and say yes or no or nuance it your own way. But I'm making these connections with what you said in the article. It was a nice way you, you worked in the baseball analogy to you know to later on you like stats and all of that. But there's still something there's something which that added to, but there's something deeper which is inarticulate. And there's I mean uh, there's something about beauty that. Um, 
at, at once is inarticulable, but and, and this goes back to uh, pseudo Dionysius and his observations about beauty. Uh, there's something about beauty that at the same time is, uh, you know, doesn't allow us to finally grasp it or, or, or articulate it, but also at the same time makes us want to, that, you know, that circles back and makes us want to understand it intellectually. So it, it is kind of the beauty that sparks cognition uh, and the desire to, to know. And that connects, I'm going to get ahead of myself here, but you talk about how beauty then drives one to produce more beauty or to want to imitate it or to want to share it. Yes. Uh, could you talk yes. about those dynamics to some degree and how they're significant for you? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, this gets into, you know, the epistemology that, that uh, you know, I'm uh, gesturing towards. Uh, they can't be exhaustive, but we're all on the same page. And, and this is a question, of course, I had earlier, but where epistemology is a reference to, you know, ways of knowing, forms of knowing, how we come to know, how we know what we know. So just to make sure that word is out there, we have a kind of a common playing field. Uh, back to you on, on how this is uh, speaks to the epistemology of your project. Yes. Yeah, so uh, unlike... Um, you know, knowing ideas, uh, you know, sort of the cognitive intellectual knowing of ideas. Uh, beauty, uh, beauty is not neutral. It is, uh, in a sense, it is something that, uh, that can't, you know, we don't know dispassionately or clinically. It is something that, uh, that grasps us, that calls us beyond ourselves, that, um, that takes us up into itself and that makes us want to uh, share it with other people. And uh, at, you know, at the end of the day, uh, in this, this uh, from Elaine Scarry, that we join in covenant with the beauty, beautiful in some sense. Um, so I, I, in my, uh, you know, music and art, uh, I found that to be true to one degree or another, I think. Uh, there's always a sense in which some forms draw us and compel us beyond ourselves, uh, you know, more than others. But, uh, but I would say for me that I have found that to be true. It, um, it is a way of knowing that I think in some sense you can see uh, that bears resemblance to what we imagine to be true about what we hope to be true about the gospel. You know, the gospel is something that, that claims us you know, that draws us into itself and that compels us to share it with others. And so anyway, that's uh, enough of a nutshell, uh, you know, to, to, to speak about beauty as a way of knowing. And, and let me pick up on the reference to the gospel there. So, so what precisely is beauty's um, theological significance and, and, and how is it manifest? Um, and is there a difference, I'll blend this with another question, uh, I mean, is there both a theological and a secular sort of beauty? Um, and are they, are they both good? Are they distinct? Are they good for different purposes? How do you kind of make those sorts of distinctions? Um, so I'll start with, um, I'll start with, with that question. Uh, I, I think, um, I think we have to be willing to say that 
Uh, and this is this is true of theology historically, although you know some in sort of contemporary context try to separate out beauty. I mean, try to separate out theology as sort of a, a subdiscipline, uh, you know, that's distinct and that kind of lives in its own silo. But but historically and traditionally, especially for folks like Thomas Aquinas, um, and, and all the way back to Augustine, uh, beauty, I mean, theology was, um, you know, of course, the queen of sciences, but it, it was a way, it was a way to speak of all things, all things have theological significance. And so I think we have to be willing to, uh, to wonder, you know, the, about theology's significance to all things. And here, beauty is, you know, the tradition of beauty is making that claim that the things that we perceive in the world that are beautiful, uh, uh, beauty is not just an anomaly, it's not just a peak experience. Uh, it, 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 it speaks to us of, um, of a creator. It speaks to us of the glory of a creator. Uh, uh, and it speaks to us of, it points towards something that is more perfect uh, in the perfections of God but also we might say in the beauty of, of uh, the incarnation of Christ. And so, so beauty is at once um, both something that is recognizable by everyone in, in some way or another uh, across the disciplines. I, in, in my preparation for uh, writing about this, uh, almost everyone now uh, in, in the sciences, in the humanities, in uh, social science, um, you know, economic, political theory, almost everyone is writing about aesthetics. And uh, so it's something that everyone recognizes. Um, theology makes the connection, of course, uh, to the creator, you know, to the, to the, uh, the creation of all things ex nihilo, uh, which, which God called good, uh, which can be translated as, as harmonious or beautiful, uh, kavod. Or Tove, and so um, so anyway, that's in a nutshell. That's the connection to theology. It is at once uh, something that is perceivable uh, by all people, but but theology gives its significance. Theology is what names its depth uh, that that finally connects things to God, uh, in which God, which is its source and its telos, its beginning and its end. You you um, you talk about Elaine Scarry's appeal to the surplus of aliveness um, that is a gift of beauty, um, and you also use language of excess. Uh, beauty's excess, you say, is woven into the fabric of creation. Uh, could you speak a bit more about this excess that you you mean, and then and relate it to the surplus of aliveness that that Scarry speaks of? Yeah, I think uh, this question um, is is best articulated uh, as a response to uh, you know to modernity. I think I think we are at the far end of an era, historical era, in which reason, pure reason, sort of uh, had a, had a certain kind of appeal, but in which uh, also postmodern philosophy is discovering. Uh, its flaws, how, how it, it hides biases, it, it hides um, its shadow, and, and it serves in some sense as a, can serve as, as a source of oppression. And 
And so uh, it, it does that in part by objectifying things. We live in a world where, uh, you know, in our attempts to think uh, in terms of reason, I look out my window and I see a tree. And when I try to think about it in purely those terms, I can think about it in terms of cellular biology or photosynthesis, or I can think about it in economic terms as bored feet of lumber. And in other words, I can think about it as an object, uh, an object that is abstracted from its ground of being, an object which, um, you know, which doesn't have significance beyond its use value for me or for the world. And this is what this is what I'm trying to speak against and what I think von Balthasar and others who uh, who are trying to reclaim beauty are trying to uh, speak against uh, this this uh, this disenchantment of the world. And so when when I use terms like excess, uh, or when I think Scari uses uh, the term surplus of aliveness, um, what we're trying to say is that there's something significant about this tree that speaks of more than just its use value for me uh, or my ability to parse it in terms of uh, biochemical or physiological uh, you know, cause and effect. It, it, it speaks to something that um, it speaks of wonder, it speaks of mystery, and finally, it speaks of God. And so, so that so part of what's happening here is a, is an attempt to reenchant the world, an attempt to uh, to restore the world um, to this sense of uh, and, and this is Charles Taylor's terms that, that that we are porous to the world, that we are not just buffered selves. Uh, divided off from the world and relegated to our mental capacities for projecting onto the world, uh, but that we are in, in a in some very real sense open to the world. That that the world has meaning and, and significance, um, you know, for us beyond the mere facts of cause and effect, efficient causality, or the mere facts of uh, you know economics or use value. So so that's what we're trying to reclaim, and that's. Uh, I think beauty is one way of doing that. And I, I know you're in your own work, you're trying to do that in, in, in other ways. But, but I think for many of us, that is, uh, that's at the bottom, that's, at the that's the ground of what's at stake here is trying to reclaim a sense of how we engage a world uh, that is more than just, uh, you know, use value. It, it is trying to reclaim a world that is sacred, that is sacramental, that is uh, alive with uh, God, alive with uh, not just fact, but, but value. I really like the notion of, of re-enchanting the world um, in these ways. Uh, let me use this as a way to um, sharpen the, the question about the, the contrast between the secular and the theological. And maybe that's not a good contrast in your mind. I'm not sure. But when you speak of it, it's speaking to God, speaking to a creation, speaking to theology. But then, you you know, Scari, of course, is is not religious uh, in any of those senses at all. Uh, and neither any of the other people you cite, Nehemas and others who are making this affirmation of beauty. Um, so can you say a little more if, is it mistaken to ask this sort of a question about what's theological about it? Would they, in a way, have the same understanding of it 
speaking to creation or what is distinctive about, or is there something distinctive about beauty um, that, that speaks to uh, Christian ministry? And this doesn't have to be exclusive. It might, it might be there's different ways it speaks to other faith traditions, right? So I don't mean for that necessarily to be exclusive. What would be special uh, or distinctive about it uh, in the way you're pursuing it, um, connecting to Christianity? Um, so I heard several questions. Uh, let me let me um, let me jump in and talk a little bit, and you tell me if if I'm not answering the ones you wanted me to answer. But but I think I think one of the things that seems to be true of folks like, especially Iris Murdoch, uh, Alexander Nehemoth. Uh, I can't speak so much to Daniel Stern, but 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 a lot of these folks are trying to. They're seeing something more than use value. They're seeing something that's that's in the world that um, that also speaks of transcendence. Now, I, you know, Iris Murdoch, as you know, is is uh, I mean, she's trying to reclaim a kind of Platonism uh, as a way of uh, you know responding to this you know beauty significance. Nehemiah is uh, you know talking about. Uh, I mean, his conclusion is that uh, beauty uh, speaks of hope, but he doesn't really talk about, uh, he, you know, he doesn't address the metaphysical, where does hope come from, where does it go? So I think all of these folks are, 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 are working sort of at the edges of what um, modernity is capable of, uh, secularity is capable of doing, but they're doing so in a way that I think leaves them open to, to, you know, uh, other conversations about transcendence, about, uh, you know, about religion. And, and so, so, so then we see folks like, uh, you know, your, your folks like Levinas and Jean-Luc Marion, who, uh, who are, who have once again, you know, made, made it possible for, for philosophy uh, to work in theology or, or to, you know, reclaim theology in a sense. And so I think what we're seeing here at the end of modernity and in this sort of new postmodern, if, if that's what we're calling it, um, you know, age, that we've reached the limits of pure reason. And we're now sort of exploring the edges of what is possible, um, you know, in, in, uh, in terms of reason. And so, uh, so I think so that's that's what I think is happening for a lot of these figures that they're noticing that beauty does something that can't be accounted for by pure reason. Um, but I think for Christians, this you know it, it, none of this should be a problem. Uh, for Christians, uh, Christians have always had uh, embedded in our liturgies, uh, embedded in our psalms, language for glory, uh, language about uh, beauty. Um, and so this is simply um, a way of, of restoring to Christians something that was uh, something that was lost, I think, in in uh, the modern sort of uh, retreat into pure reason. And so that that's what I think is at stake here for Christians. It's uh, is, is trying to trying to drink from our own wells again. It is trying to. Um, trying to find something, uh, you know, in beauty that is at the heart of the tradition, something that was uh, understood fully by the patristics, especially those in the Cappadocian tradition, 
understood fully by Maximus the Confessor, understood fully uh, by folks, uh, you know, Thomas Aquinas on up until late um, medieval period, that, you know, that there, there are, that beauty um, is capable of speaking to us of something that is beyond it. Uh, beauty connects us to transcendence. It connects us to the incarnation. So I, I think I'm, I've circled back around to repeating myself. So, uh, so tell me if, it, if I'm answering the questions that you're interested in, Bill. Yeah, well, no, and I, it, it, um, I think it's interesting how you, uh, you know, we, you say beauty is a category of theology, and I think you're right. This has been kind of neglected, uh, but it's there. It's not. This is not something new. It's a retrieval and a, a drawing of attention to something which is not, you know, has not disappeared. Uh, I mean, I think of the stained glass windows and of the the, the liturgies and of the hymnology, the hymns we have, and the music, and the choirs. I mean, we, people are just surrounded by beauty um, in church liturgies. Uh, we do all sorts of creation spirituality nowadays, where we're, we're looking at the beauty of creation and drawing uh, spiritual connections there. So so it's interesting in, in, in ways in which, you know, I mean, it, it kind of goes with your baseball analogy to some degree. In a way, we know this um, in a bodily sort of pre-articulate sort of way, and it's a part of what we take joy in and celebrate uh, with one another, but but perhaps it hasn't been enough of a thematic analysis, so we've lost the ability to be as conscious about it and maybe to be about as conscious about using it um, as we might. Um, you make a distinction between, um, part the, near the beginning of your essay, you talk about how when I say beauty, you know, people might just think of superficial beauty, decoration, or um, or um, eroticism in a in a negative sense, or things like that. What what are the what is the distinction for you between decoration and beauty, and 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 what are ways in which maybe beauty has been uh, misunderstood, uh, or understood in a way that's contrary to the sort of depth you want to be bringing out um, in it, in terms of its 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 spiritual uh, richness. Yeah. So. Um... Hans Urs von Balthasar, who is perhaps the 20th century's leading, if not his history's leading, uh, you know, advocate for reclaiming beauty. Um, you know, he, he had a, he once said that the problem is that beauty in the modern era, beauty has been aestheticized, <laughs> which kind of seems like an odd way to speak about beauty because of course beauty is aesthetic. But what he meant by that is that in the modern era, uh, beauty has been flattened into surfaces. Um, beauty has been reduced to simply, um, you know, the appeal of the decorative appeal of something. And for for him, the the grand tradition that he's drawing from, you know, is much deeper uh, and wider than that. And and so for him, beauty. Uh, and, you know, you have to read his many thousands of pages to get the full sense of this, but, but for him, beauty is a, is a way of speaking about, uh, about wonder. It's a way of speaking about, um, you know, thalmazine, the Greek, Greek term, you know, wonder, what you, that the creation opens into something beyond it. And, and so for him, it is not, it, you know, he, he thinks that uh, beauty in the modern era, as it has been sort of co-opted by advertising and um, and sort of, of course, 
relegated to the margins by reason, um, you know, th that there's a sense in which beauty has become flattened uh, itself for, um, you know, for its, uh, you know, ego use, for it advertising use for its uh, for its own purposes that that don't connect with transcendence so so that's you know for von Balthasar that's what's at stake here um, you know is is trying to flesh out the the traditional sense uh, of beauty that does all the things that we've been talking about it is at once uh, it, it does draw us it does have appeal its form is significant but for von Balthasar, and, and I'll say this, I might, maybe I should have said this earlier when we're talking about epistemology, but I think it fits here as well. When we see beauty, we, we're perceiving two aspects. We're perceiving beauty in two of its aspects. Uh, its form um, and its lumen. Uh, it's, it's lumen and its species are two different ways he talks about it. But uh, so, so when we see, perceive beauty, we're drawn into it by uh, by the shape it given by art, by the shape, uh, the you know the the unity of of uh, dark and light, uh, the unity of uh, the elements of an artistic or uh, a natural scene of beauty. Uh, we're drawn into its form, but he says there's also something beyond it. Uh, that he calls speed, uh, lumen or the light that's beyond it that, uh, that prevents us from ever sort of uh, exhaustively comprehending it. Uh, it and here, you, you know, it, it can be helpful to think of an icon, uh, how an icon draws us into it, but also draws us, draws our eyes, draws our gaze beyond it. And so beauty does something of the same kind of thing uh, for von Balthasar, he's talking about beauty as a way of knowing that draws us, evokes our desire, uh, along with all of the things we have said, um, but also draws us beyond it, draws our gaze beyond it. So, um, and, and ultimately, of course, to its source in, in God. Uh, so does that, does that help? Did yeah. I get to all your questions? <laughs> I, I mean, it's such an expansive topic. These are is, yeah. uh, questions. It's just interesting to think about beauty in a way, um, you know, just to be attentive to it and how it functions to move us um, and, um, and and its power to connect us uh, to being in a different sort of a way. Um, let me uh, let me change tax a little bit here and go you have David Bentley Hart um, uh, who's another author he wrote a book called The Beauty of the Infinite as, which you cite from um, and he says beauty uh, places times tragedies within a broader perspective of harmony and meaning um, such that beauty seems to absolve being um, of its violence um, and elsewhere you have him you cite him as saying beauty proclaims God's glory and creation's goodness with equal eloquence and truthfulness in each moment, in each interval within being. Um, but wouldn't this seem a little Pollyannish? Or not, you know, there's, I mean, I could name, of course, you know, numerous horrors, right, in the world where I would be surprised for someone to say in those moments uh, that there's beauty. Um, and I also might be surprised, or certainly some people would wonder if 
you know, how the other beautiful moments on the whole absolve those moments of violence. So um, in terms of the relationship of, of beauty to violence, or I don't know the category that would be used, what's ugly maybe, um, uh, can, you, can you discuss that? You get the sense of my question. There seems to be a, a way in which um, Hart suggests, um, it's kind of like a superficial rendering of the all things work together for good. Um, you know, interpretation of that in a kind of superficial way, which I don't think is what Paul meant, uh, but in a way which means that, you know, whatever, whatever is happening, it's not actually bad um, if, you, if you could see it in a broader perspective. Um, and and that, that, that for many people is a um, uh, troubling inability just to name uh, the reality of evil uh, without remainder. Could you comment on that or what they do with that or how you think about that? Yeah, so um, so I think that's that's a risk, and you're naming something that is hard to address in a three thousand word essay. But but I, I am t in total agreement that, um, that to to whatever extent Hart is trying to articulate anything like a theodicy that reconciles God or beauty with evil in the world in any kind of easy or immediate way. I, I mean, I I reject out of hand. I, I think that. Um, I, I, I don't find theodicies of any sort satisfying. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, speaking confessionally, um, you know, suffering in the world of the sort that, that you, you and I have talked about, you know, the, the, the uh, brothers Karamazov, when Ivan Karamazov, um, you know, is telling of all of the horrors of children who are being abused and, and that he, 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 uh, he wants to give back his ticket if, if, it, if the price to be paid is the tears of a small child, one small child. So I, I'm in total agreement uh, that there is no way to finally make meaning out of evil in this world and beauty does not do that. Um, all, the only thing beauty uh, I think does uh, in my sense is it, it provides a kind of backdrop, uh, you know, a reminder that that beauty is is the foundation of things. That beauty, that the world was created in beauty. That the world. I mean, in a sense, what I'm saying about beauty is is not any different than than what uh, Dr. King says about uh, justice. You know, uh, you know, uh, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Um, I, I, I'm only trying to say that evil is is in the world. There is no easy way of making sense of it. If we even can make make sense of it, um, but that uh, but but the world is created in beauty and uh, and in some obscure uh, uh, mysterious way points towards God and ends with the beauty of God in all where God is all in all. So uh, uh, so that's that's kind of what I'm saying here, and, and I think. Um, of course, you know, the, uh, beauty is not the only way to think about this. Moltmann, uh, you know, for Moltmann, uh, his term is hope. Um, and the, the, work, the work that hope does in his system is that hope is a way of reclaiming uh, motivation for wor works of goodness in the world, works of justice in the world. And I would say uh, in a similar way, uh, to be reminded of beauty reminds us and compels us uh, towards 
towards doing works of goodness in the world. It doesn't, it doesn't absolve finally uh, the horrors of, uh, or reconcile in any easy way, the horrors of evil in the world, but it can, um, it, you know, if we perceive it where it is, uh, you know, it can, it can compel us uh, to be about God's work of goodness and beauty and justice in the world. Yeah. And, and as we set aside, so let's set aside the, the problems of, 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 of it, the ways in which it sounds like that can deny the reality of evil. Once we set that aside, then there's a way in which beauty um, can be healing, right? I mean, it's not a denial, but nonetheless a, a resource for those who have been yeah. um, hurt or harmed. Um, you, you speak kind of in this way. It's, it's a fascinating story about um, research uh, with done with English-only speaking graduate students um, who had an option of being, I, I take it, in different places in a building. But in one place, uh, there was the cooing, uh, playing a recording of the cooing, you say, in Chinese, of Chinese mothers and fathers uh, to their newborns. Um, and what they found out was these graduate students uh, who were unaware of anything going on at all and didn't speak, you know, no word of Chinese, nonetheless, over time, they would congregate in that area where they would hear um, this cooing. Uh, sound uh, um, so you could use that to speak to ways in which uh, beauty is especially powerful um, when one needs comfort um, or or strength um, you know in the face of, of hardship or suffering yeah I, I, the, the example I, I um, that example I was you know drawing on to make the point about how beauty crosses modes you know how it uh, beauty doesn't remain, uh, you know, local to its, um, you know, enactment or to its perception, but it, it, it crosses modes. It, uh, from the beautiful cooing of the mother, it crosses over into not only the response of the infant, but also to these, you know, uh, you know, these graduate students um, who find themselves gravitating to the room who didn't understand Chinese, uh, you know, but but who were gravitating to this room for their own comfort in the midst of, I think the study, uh, in the study, uh, this was a particularly stressful time. Maybe it was finals week or something, and the <laughs> <laughs> and and the graduate students would gravitate to this room just you know for self uh, comfort. Uh, but I but I think I think that's there's a sense in which. And this gets back to Hart's uh, observation. I think there is a sense in which, and, and also Nehemiah's, I think um, beauty, there's something about beauty that promises, that promises more, you know, that, that is healing, but also uh, constitutes something like a promise uh, of more complete healing. Um, you, you, you talk about von Balthasar uh, seeing the cross-shaped form of the word made flesh as um, God's art, uh, and that it calls forth sacrifice um, on our part, um, which, which, again, I found a, a really interesting combination of thoughts and images. Um, But I was, I, uh, there will be, of course, people who worry about associating the cross quickly with sacrifice. 
Um, and, and also with seeing the cross as beautiful. So the, the, you'll be familiar uh, with those uh, critiques. So I, I was just wondering if uh, you could, one, address those critiques uh, I, uh, and, and also uh, expand on how um, we see God's art in the cross-shaped form of the Word made flesh. Yeah, so, so this is von Balthasar, along with uh, others before him, uh, you know, Magnus the Confessor, and I think Dionysius uh, Areopagite, uh, they're identifying uh, the incarnation, they're identifying Christ as, as God's art, you know, as the beauty that found, that finds its origins, its ground in, in, uh, in God, in the infinite. Uh, perfected in, in God, um, but is manifest in a, in a concrete, you know, way in Jesus Christ, and not not only in his, uh, you know, his crucifixion, uh, but but in his in his life and in his teachings, uh, from start to finish, uh, we might say you might say that that Christ was always in his incarnation about crossing over, and. Uh, you know, uh, decentering himself, crossing over, and joining in solidarity with the other on behalf of the other. We find this, of course, in the the, the various stories of the woman at the well. Um, you know, uh, joining uh, with uh, the, the tax collectors, healing uh, the lepers, um, the Good Samaritan story. I mean, all of the parables sort of have something of this. Uh, this ethic of, of crossing over and um, and joining in, uh, in in some sense in a in a in a, an ecstatic sort of uh, self self giving sort of way on behalf of the other, and so this is what von Balthasar was identifying as uh, the characterizing beauty of God, the characterizing beauty of the gospel. And for von Balthasar, this is this is sort of uh, the, the origins of this self-giving love uh, are found in uh, the Trinity, and so he's he's arguing, of course, that uh, that Christ, in his, um, you know, in in the Gospels and the all of the parables and the stories we have, uh, and, and in this sense, his his crucifixion is not, um, it, it, you know, is in continuity with his life. It is it is giving himself on behalf of others um you know so anyway this is this is what uh this is how von balthasar is uh you know is is elaborating this notion of god's art um so uh so i'm not sure that i uh answered all of your questions what what, what am i leaving out here uh I, I I don't know. Uh, uh, I, don't wanna, I, I want to give you a chance to respond to the general question, so I don't want to uh, keep uh, driving a point. I think one of the things I love about this, um, you know, it, it you know when you think of God, you think of the classic attributes of God. You know, you got an omniscient, omnipotent, all these different omnis, or also, you know, the the you know the the Trinitarian sorts of confessions. But what you know what you don't usually hear is God is beautiful. Uh, that that's kind of what's striking about uh, Hart's title and the approach you're taking, um, and also in terms of the contrast to modern thought. Uh, you know, I mean, you think of uh, the famous um, 
argument, you know, for the from the watch, right? The watchmaker God. Uh, in modernity, God is this kind of creator who is almost, in, you know, in the motto of an engineer or a mechanic, uh, right. and, and which kind of uh, you realize is is, is quite the uh, quite a limited way of imagining God. Instead of seeing God as, as you're suggesting as an artist um, and as beautiful in beauty. Uh, what in what ways along those lines that you're kind of opening up for us to kind of name and then celebrate and affirm um, and I think identify as divine um, you know even things that I mean as you said in the article you've brought forth uh, ways in which secular thinkers have identified realities which for you are spiritual realities they see them even though they wouldn't name them as such they benefit from them uh, in, in, in that sense the gift of God in other in other sorts of ways what are the main ways in which using this metaphor um, and thinking in terms of beauty as you do theology and uh, and Christian formation and education, what are some of the most powerful ways this metaphor, as you've been engaging in this years, has, has opened you up uh, to different ways of thinking of the divine and thinking of, of, of what is worship or spiritually enlivening? Yeah, I, I, think it, um, I think it has opened up the world as sacrament, in a sense. I think it has opened up uh, the, the, whole, the cosmos as theophany. I think in, in a sense it, um, you know, it, it compels us, uh, and, and, and I don't want to suggest that I, you know, live into this ethic as fully as I would want, but, uh, but you know, in, in this- All the rest of us who live fully into our ethics. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason we have confession every week, right? <laughs> That's right. Uh, but, but I think, um, you know, in, in, the, in a world that has- flattened everything into efficient causality that has flattened our political parties just to use a a more um you know uh, immediate reference you know we flattened each other uh, the political parties have flattened each other into caricatures into ideological caricatures and we have forgotten how to see uh the depth uh in each other and so i, I think um and, and you know uh, our denominations have their own versions of that, of course, but I think the world is in a in crying need, cries out for something like, um, uh, you know, reclaiming the contemplative practices of of art of the artist, uh, you know, who linger for a, who linger for a long time with a landscape as they paint it. Uh, in order to know it well, they do study after study to see it in, in its different light. And they experiment with uh, how different colors uh, are more true, uh, you know, constitute, uh, create that thing in, in more in its truth. And so I, I think we, I think we would do well to reclaim some of these practices of lingering more contemplatively and appreciatively uh, you know, this is not a new thought for contemplative, um, you know, uh, spirituality. It was Walter Burkhart's, uh, you know, uh, observation that contemplation is a is a long lingering, a long, loving look at the real. And this is this is something all artists know. Uh, you know, art is not just trying to, um, you know, pull something out of my head. Art is trying to name what is truly there, that's, that's the shimmering goodness that lies beneath the ordinary. I mean, that's what that's what artistry is is trying to do, and so that's what I think 
using terminology around beauty and poesis is an attempt to try to reclaim something like that practice, that set of practices. Um, I, I, I um, you know, this is not just for me uh, an esoteric, um, you know, hobby. This, this is, there's real urgency for me uh, that we reclaim something like this. Uh, if, if we're going to live in a world um, that is that isn't violent and hostile and uh, that can work in any sense collaboratively. I think we need something like these practices that uh, that call us to attend to the beauty in each other. So does that does that make sense? Oh yeah, I love it, and I love the. I mean, there's something redemptive about beauty that's being lost in the flattening you're talking about. I mean, maybe that's the way in which insane, especially as you talk about needing to spend time and to contemplate and to be awakened to the beauty. It's not something you just do, you know, rapid fire the, to, to, to really see a sunset, uh, it, to really be in a forest. It, it takes time uh, to yes. inhabit that in such a way. Um, and there are multiple things going on, but to, 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 to the beauty, maybe in that sense, one could say the, the distinction between the decorative and the artistic may not lie in the object. I mean, uh, I get frustrated when I see mainly works of art uh, in the newspaper. I, the main time I see them is when they've gotten a high dollar value at auction, and, and which completely erases them as works of art and, and flatten them exactly, precisely into the economy you're talking about, where suddenly what you're seeing is, you know, a $415 million sale of some piece. I think that actually was the price of one I saw a couple of days ago, which is kind of obscene in its own right, in terms of, you know, need and, and money, but also obscene in the sense that that that's not to see the art. Uh, you know, so you can go by and you can see the Mona Lisa as a piece of decoration. So now I've added it to the collections I've seen in person. Or you can, you know, probably with the Mona Lisa, this is impossible, <laughs> spend time with the piece um, and, and, and allow yourself to be moved by it or other uh, pieces. So the the decorative, everything becomes decoration, not because it is inherently decorative, but because something about modern rationality has put us into a mode where we only can discern the decorative. And so we've lost the depths of beauty you're talking about. Um, the, the, the tremendous potential here to rehabilitate beauty in its real depth. Uh, that, that's really uh, stunning. Uh, comment on that. And also you've referenced, uh, just in passing a moment ago, seeing the earth, uh, I forget the language you used, but it came close to saying the earth as sacrament. And kind of, and, and you've been naming, um, um, uh, who is it, Maximus the Confessor. I'm not precisely sure where these people are, but this would put you really in a strong way with Eastern Orthodox thought, right? Yes. And of course, David Bentley Hart, who you cite and did the Beauty of the Infinite, is an Eastern Orthodox theologian. So does this also maybe talk, speak to, uh, as is, by the way, Dostoevsky, uh, whose work on beauty is also significant. Uh, do, so does this, do you speak to resources maybe coming from the Eastern Orthodox tradition um, and its way of seeing, uh, uh, affirming creation um, in its sacramental depths? Is, is that a part of what you're working at and thinking about? I think so, but maybe not in quite the way. I, I, um, I would not want to suggest that I am any kind of expert expert on orthodoxy eastern orthodoxy yeah, me uh, by the way so <laughs> but but i do think uh and and this is this is in the wesleyan tradition 
uh, John Wesley was trying to reclaim something that he saw in the Cappadocian fathers that, that he thought the, the Reformation didn't uh, do adequate, you know, uh, you know, justice to. So, so for, for Wesley, Wesley was trying to reclaim beauty uh, in a more expansive sense and, and grace, uh, prevenient grace in a more expansive sense, um, you know, that he saw in the Cappadocians, which also the Orthodox are drawing from, you know, the Eastern Orthodox folks are drawing from heavily. So, so I think that may be the connection. Um, but, uh, but I do think there is, uh, I do think we are living in a moment where um, it's important, I think, for Protestants of all sorts and, uh, you know, to, to, to try to mine these resources again uh, and to ask the questions, what, what we've lost, um, you know, by moving, you know, more fully in the direction of rationality. So, so anyway, that, that's, uh, that's the connection I would make. Um, does that, that make sense? Sure. And I, and I'm glad you brought in Wesley there. Let me bring in Calvin referring to creation as the theater, theater. God's glory. I mean, what yeah. kind of open to it, uh, we realize the degree to which, modern Western rationality in particular for, for all its gifts, and they are many, at the same time uh, has some significant limits and, and perhaps has uh, cut us off from resources we need to be rediscovering. And, and as you suggest, as people are rediscovering across across the board, yes. uh, secular and um, uh, religious. Um, in, in your conclusion, you use this wonderful uh, uh, image of shook foil. I found that to be, I just could kind of picture that, that feel, that sound. It's a very vibrant image. Um, but use that image to describe the sort of being you are exhorting us towards as children of God. Um, could you explain a bit more uh, that image and, and, and what you're trying to exhort us towards uh, with it? Well, of course, that's not my image. That's Gerard Manley Hopkins. Uh, oh. uh, so, uh, but but what Hopkins is trying to get at here is just uh, the alterity, uh, you know, of the earth, the alterity of of the create created order. That could you just kind of define alterity? Maybe that's what you're about to do. Yeah, just just that it is it is other than me. It is other than us. And that there is in the uh, there is finally a shimmering goodness that lies beneath the ordinary, that can't be reduced to the ego that I project upon it. I mean, here the, you know we can uh, we can talk about uh, uh, you know this is your guy Jean Luc Marion, you know, and sort of his understanding of the idol and the icon. And so for for Marion, I'm, I'm going to butcher this, uh, <laughs> uh, Bill, but but. Marianne uh, sees the, the, the idol as that which is only, that draws our gaze, but in the end only uh, reflects back to us our own ego. Uh, the icon draws our gaze beyond it. And, um, and so I, I think that's kind of what uh, the, the image of Shook Foil is trying to speak of something. Um, uh, there's something about the created world that is, the world announces itself it announces the holy, it announces its otherness from us. And so, um, so that's, that's more or less what I'm trying to get at. Shook foil, uh, you know, the, the, this is, um, this was a theme of Tolkien. 
uh, J.R.R. Tolkien in his uh, you know imaginative fantasy writing, uh, and, and this this is um, these ideas he was drawing borrowing from G.K. Chesterton. You know they they their work with imaginative fantasy literature. Uh, you know, we, which we've, of course, taken to be children's literature or, uh, you know, some sort of exotic genre, subgenre of literature. But, uh, but Tolkien says that, that those who write imaginative fantasy, uh, they, they, write, um, they write about golden apples and rivers that run with wine in order to awaken us to the to the outrageous beauty and the otherness of the created order uh, when that, that we first discovered, and so this is this is what Tolkien is trying to do in his uh, by in creating these figures, he's he's trying to uh, he's trying to awaken us to the outrageous beauty of the created order itself, not not to evacuate us into some mystery land so much as to awaken us to the to the beauty of the created order as it exists. Um, so that's kind of what, what I'm trying to get at here uh, by the, using the, evoking Hopkins image of shook foil. All right, finally, we'll get down to our last question here. Um, as a closing word, uh, can we ask you to share in one pithy sentence, maybe it's a run-on sentence, or maybe there's lots of semicolons or such, um, but the essence of your convictions and hopes about the reality and promise of beauty. So my hope is that the church especially can break its bondage to reductive and objectifying forms of, of thought and action, that we can once again live and move in a world alive and enchanted, where fact and value are united, where all things point to God and where God points to the goodness of all things and to creative human work. So that's a long sentence, but <laughs> in a nutshell. So, and we'll leave it with that. But I think, I mean, it's just so wonderful to attend to this. And I wonder if a lot of people may, um, I remember uh, early on in the crisis of, of COVID and the lockdown, the number of people who we were reading about and um, uh, who, who were finding solace in nature in beauty in uh, sunsets just you know as a as a, a place for peace and solace and hope and um and i think it's just a tremendous um uh reawakening you're urging us towards uh to kind of you know we're already surrounded by so much uh, human and natural creative uh creaturely beauty um and and uh, to be attentive to it and to see it as a real theological gift a spiritual resource um and and uh, to figure out how to make that more real for ourselves and others and how to struggle against the ways in which uh certain patterns of of, of rationality have cut us off from that um i think that's just a wonderful uh endeavor and i want to thank you for um, sharing it with us and uh, alerting us to it uh, here. So thank you, thank you so much uh, for your essay and for the journal that you have uh, stimulated on this topic, which is full, by the way, of of of, of great reflections on this theme. Um, and then for your work, and we'll look forward to to the book coming out uh, <laughs> on, on beauty. So thank you very much, David. Thank you, Bill.